airways Here is my request You don't have to play it But I hope you'll do your best I've been listening to your show on the radio And you seem like a friend to me Howdy hi, Victoria Stand the man Hello Oh, don't get up, it's only me. Hello, welcome to a brand new year. I'm Liz. I'm Pete. 1420-3XY. How are you? It's nine after six with Lee Simon. It's 18 to six. 3DB with Keith McGowan. More grand old favourites to play for you a little later on. 3 E, the Breeze 693. Good morning and welcome to our brand new radio station. Good afternoon, Melbourne. It's seven minutes past three. This is Greg Evans at 1420 3XY. Well, hi, and welcome once again to Pilots of the Airwaves. It is our 40 minutes or so each week where we talk with the people behind the voices who were friends to a whole generation. And today's guest started his radio career broadcasting to approximately 9,000 people on the banks of the Murray River and ended up with a syndicated program heard by over a million people on 100 radio stations across the country. Let's take 40 or so minutes to learn more about Barry Bissell. What a wonderful place to be living in. What a marvelous place to be. Launceston is the city for fun. A swinging town for anyone. It's great to live with Action Radio. The exciting sound is just fun. 24 hours a day, everything's a-okay. Launceston's right on the line. The action's great, you bet. With your radio set on the swinging sound of seven Hey, Barry Bissell, welcome to Pilots, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. I actually wanted to be a pilot when I was a kid, but um, I wasn't very good at maths, and apparently you needed that to join the Air Force or Qantas, so I uh, took them to radio instead. Now, another of our guests who was born and bred in the country, for you, it was Swan Hill. Tell me, what do you remember about growing up in the bush, and what were some of the freedoms that you had then that kids today can, well, only dream about? Uh, Mate, we used to... You know, you didn't have to wear sunscreen or hats or T-shirts or anything. But uh, Mallee, the, the Mallee and the Swan Hill especially, which is right on the Murray River, we used to, we weren't supposed to, we used to go and swim in the river. Uh, and there were currents and I wasn't a very good swimmer. But, um, uh, you know, there were just no restrictions. I used to ride my bike out to Manangatang or down to Lake Boga to, to see a girlfriend down there. And it was just freedom. You couldn't have met, you know, just can't imagine the freedoms that we don't have now, back then. Now, Barry, some successful jocks have Lee Murray to thank, others Clark Sinclair, but it was Marjorie McLeod who worked closely with you voice-wise. What can you tell us about Marjorie? Marjorie was a, a lovely little Swan Hill local, um, tiny little woman, uh, fierce, and she, was, she started the Swan Hill Theatre Company and they did a, an annual production of Shakespeare. And I, I, I went in, I think it was Dad's idea, because he said, you know, you might, you might like this. I, no, I did an ABC play for um, a radio play that somehow or other she tipped me into. She knew who I was. And I was, you know, I was just a kid. I, was about, I played a kid nine years old or something. And... Um, and then she said, you, sh- you could do with some voice training and some theatre work. So I went to her and she's this tiny little thing. There's nothing of her. And she'd, she'd, her big thing with your voice was project, project. And she used to smack you in the diaphragm and say, no, don't keep it up here in your head. Get it out. And so because it was, you know, live theatre and projecting was her thing that you, you um the audience had to hear what you say. So it was no good being on stage with Henry V and mumbling. So she trained me to actually, and it changed my voice, the way I used my voice. So how did you land that first job in radio? The, the, I'd done the radio play 
And I, get, I had a bit of a taste for it. It was just done in a studio at um, the local radio station, 3, 3SH, because there was no ABC studios anywhere. Then they hired it out and we had a couple of professional actors in them. So. And by coincidence, the manager at the, at the local radio station, Harry Lithgow, um, lived on the end of our street. And when I was coming up to the end of high school, as everybody does, people ask you, what are you going to do when you grow up? And I had to make something up. I used to say, I'd like to be an architect or a pilot or something. (laughs) And I actually had no idea. And I was coming to the end of high school and I I wasn't actually particularly good at, um, at anything. I wasn't interested in anything other than, by that stage, music because the Beatles had come along and all I wanted to do was listen to music and play music. And so um, I got on the front foot and went down to Harry's place and knocked on the back door and I said, you know, any chance that maybe I could come in and, you know, learn some stuff on the radio? And I said, yeah, sure, come in the afternoon, Lee. Um, I can't remember his surname. was uh, in the afternoon se- in the afternoon session and I'm sitting in the studio at 3SH going, wow, this is amazing. And all after two hours, he said to me, um, can you just um, play the next couple of records and do the announcing? I just got to go and do something. He just left me there on air, to go on air. And there's only about 25 listeners probably. So <laughs> I was actually thrown in the deep end and I got a taste for it because, you, you know, you live on your razor's edge doing that you've got no choice but to do it and uh, I just loved it and got a taste for it and I, live radio was really exciting because there's you know nowhere to turn if you stuff up. Now I'm just wondering was there any disappointment Barry at home that the Bissell optometrist and optician family business didn't become Bissell and Son? They're very definitely very definitely my father just said you know you'll get over this and <laughs> then you'll go You'll go and do your year 12 again and get some good results and come into the business. And I knew I disappointed him to a degree, but um, he said to me after about two years, um, he said he, he took me aside because, you know, he, was, um, he, was a, he flew Lancaster bombers in World War Two, so they were old school, but you didn't actually communicate a lot with your parents. And uh, he called me aside and he said, look, I don't want you to think there's any pressure. And he said, I'm really proud of what you've achieved and what you're doing, so I think you're, I think you're going to be good at it. And uh, so I, I got his blessing, which was great. Now, three years was a long time at your first station. Why so long and what did you learn there? Well, so long because... I was starting from scratch. I knew nothing. And um, most people, as you said, had been to, uh, to been to radio school. But uh, one of the guys who was trained by Lee and um, came to Swan Hill from, I think he'd been at 3KZ in Melbourne, a little bloke called um, Bob Taylor. And he was, he'd been, he'd been a, I think, a panel operator at 3KZ and he was a real little, I'm a rocky jockey. This is, hello, pussycats and swimmers. This is Bob Taylor. <laughs> With the whole American sort of accent and stuff. And he was, he was a dedicated radio guy. And um, he gave me such a hard time. He just, he said, look, why don't you just <laughs> give us a break and go? Because my connection with Harry Lithgow family living in Swan Hill, I, was, I think I was just a pain in the ass. So I really had to, I had to learn on the run, which I did. And, the, you know, a lot of people, a lot of the guys that uh, were working there obviously helped me through it. And um, as I said, I, you know, you, you're on the tight wire the whole time, so you learn as you go. I didn't have any choice. In London, the swing in town of 70 the second appointment was at 70X in Launceston, a station that's seen some great radio names pass through its doors. Names such as Don Lunn, Keith Livingston, Dean Matters, Peter Van, Sam Anglesey, Grantley D, and the list goes on. What was special about 70X as a breeding ground and a destination station for great announcers? Um, it was, that was a stroke of luck. A guy called Jim Cox 
um, was a DJ back in the time, and he came to 3SH, and he, he'd been at, um, he grew up in Launceston, and he, he knew, um, he knew the radio station, it was, it was kind of a small town, Launceston, and um, he got married, and I was invited to go to Launceston for the wedding, and um, he took me into 70X, and introduced, he'd gone from 3SH to 70X, and he introduced me to the manager there, Alan McClellan, who was a really divine man. And he'd been at 3UZ, which was uh, a great Melbourne station at that time. It was, that was where Don Lund and all those guys had been, Jeff Warden. And, um, and I met Jeff Warden, who um, later went to 5KA, and uh, he said to me, why don't you... Um, Send Alan a tape of your of your work at three so do an air check and sends it to him, and, and then Alan says to me, I, "I think that'd be a good idea. I'd like that." And um, I, I sent him a tape on a seven inch reel to reel that I'd cut, you know, edited myself in the studio, and um, he rang me and said, uh, "Any chance that we could do a? Uh, I could meet you in uh, in Melbourne for a um, for an interview." And I said, yes, and I went and met, met him and he said, um, I'd like you to start straight away. I went, oh, okay, <laughs> I'm leaving home. And uh, I did, I went, I went down there and uh, same thing, they put me in the air straight away that afternoon. And, uh, I just lived on my wits and went for it. Three years at 3SH, but only 12 months at 70X. Because... Alan McClelland, as I said, was a great man and a real developer of talent. That was his whole thing. Rather than keeping somebody sticking him there, he was. It was like a training ground. And as you said, they churned out a lot of great names. And um, he said to me, he called me one day and he said that there's this guy in the, in Adelaide who started um, something new because everything had been digger made, which was um, the old. 3XY and 2SM in Sydney with the Hot Jocks and eight records on rotation. And he said, I know you're interested in music because I'd started to become music director um, in my time at 70X. And he said, would you, would you like me to set up a meeting with Paul Thompson? And he flew, and he flew me from Launceston to Melbourne to meet with Paul Thompson. He told me about the station he said, I, th- I think you would enjoy it. I'd like your music expertise and I'll offer you the job as um, afternoon announcer and music director. And there, there I went straight away. I've got a lovesick beat running through my feet, oh baby. And when I sing this song, it really turns me on, oh baby. Baby, baby, well. Now, at the time that you arrived, 5KA was all about constant music, a format that seemed to be new at the time and possibly never referred to again. What was the constant music format? Well, that was, that was, Paul, that was Paul Thompson's concept because he, he didn't like, as a lot of people didn't, the eight song rotation that the, the, you know, they were churning out, which was very American format at the time. And constant music, which I always thought was a, stay, a strange name. And when he said, I thought he said, we're playing Thompson music because his name was Thompson. I said, he said, no, constant music. I said, well, okay. I said, what does that mean? And he said, well, it's a lot freer format. Um, and you, he said, I'm, I'm happy to give you your head with because I, I know you like music and uh, doing what you do. So I, I started doing late nights. And uh, there was an album show. Graham Berry had been doing an album show in Melbourne. Somebody else had an album show at 3UZ. And um, I did a Sunday night album show there. And then it, they they um, allowed me to um, do nights during the week. Um, Ten to one I started with complete freedom of choice as to what I played. 
and uh, KA became known as a great music station. All the, all the uh, bands and people loved coming to Adelaide because they'd get on air and we, we could play anything we wanted within reason and um, help break a lot of acts. It's funny, I was just watching um, Richard Clapton today. Richard, I met Richard way back then. He came, came to Adelaide and we, uh, we've been friends ever since. And he said, I just love your music thing. And I sent him, I saw him on Sky News today being interviewed about the new album, which he sent me a copy of late last year. And I said, mate, it's great. He said, well, you remember those days? We used to talk about those songs from uh, the hippie era, 67 to 71, when, uh, when we first met. And uh, so that's, you know, that's still a connection. I had, and I made a lot of friends in the music industry as a result of that. Now, in terms of presenting music to the masses in Adelaide for five years, what do you think you achieved and what are you most proud of? I would say probably um, not so much, well, to do with radio. I'm proud of the fact that we gave a lot of artists exposure, which no one else gave them. And um, I, th- I think we helped to kickstart a lot of careers or to expand careers. Um, People like Spectrum, Mike Rudd, who I still keep in contact with, and Bill Pup, who was a very good friend, um, they had one hit, uh, which I'll be gone back in 1971 when I was at uh, at 70X. And, um, you know, they, they went on to have a, a really interesting career, but no, nobody heard much much of the rest of their music. And uh, we, we got to play it and it helped you know, bands would come to Adelaide because they knew they'd get some exposure. Yeah, I, I think that's probably the proudest thing. Nothing to do with radio, apart from radio's ability to do what I thought it should do, which was share music, not just play the same things over and over. So how did the move to Melbourne to be part of the DB Music Revolution come about? Well, that was an interesting time thing because um, we'd been, people who owned 3AW, or 2GB, actually, I think it bought 3AW or the other way around. And there was a guy who approached Paul Thompson and said he loved what 5KA was doing and he was becoming programmers for the network. And 3AW was then and has always been a talk station. But 2GB in Sydney, which they own, was lagging behind because they had... John Laws on an opposition station. There were three, three stations doing talk shows in Sydney and no one doing music. And he approached Paul Thompson and he said, I love what you do in Adelaide. And he, he had a lunch with me and Paul and he, he said, I'd, I'd love you to come to Sydney and um, restart 2GB as 87 2GB, which is a music format. And the first... Um, at the end of about three weeks of being there, they they flew both Paul and I to America for a radio and records conference. And those days, there's no phone, phone contact. And when we got to, um, finally got to, I think it was in New York, and um, there was an email waiting for Paul when we checked in to announce that um, Ron Foles had been fired and... 87 2GB was no longer going. So we were there on the company company card and had no jobs to go back to. So uh, DB was a bit of an interim thing, to be honest. I, I went to Townsend for three months and worked at 4TO, um, did mornings and had a great time in the tropics. And um, then Paul, came, Paul got a job back at 3DB and uh, he called me and he said he wanted to be part of it. And that fell over after 12 months too, so... Some great names of radio shared the roster with you there, including Peter Harrison, Rick Melbourne, Greg Smith, Brian Lehman, and, of course, Dennis Scanlon. But there still were some formidable foes down there in Spencer Street. How much of the station motivation to succeed came from wanting to simply knock off 3XY, and how much was about creating your own brand and identity? Well, it was DB Music, I think, and there was uh, Brendan Sheedy, yes, Brendan Sheedy. Not, not the footy coach. Uh, Brendan had started. He'd worked in America somewhere, and uh, he had the concepts for DB Music, which didn't really tell you much at all about what it was. But it was a little bit in opposition to uh, 
to 3XY, I suspect, hoping that it could take some of the glory. But uh, it was it was a much freer approach. And when Paul went there, um, uh, I, I followed him in and did pretty much the same thing. Gonna make you morning, the whole world's talking, let the whole wide world talk to you. Melbourne, come out to play, they're gonna help you through your day. Hands and Barry, 3XY. Now, of course, you did make the move down to 3XY, first as a solo jock, then as part of a very successful Hands and Barry morning show. Was working with a partner something that you had envisaged and something you were comfortable with? And who decided the combination of Hans Torv and Barry Bissell would be a rating success? Well, it was not a complete accident. I was doing late nights. Hans was anchoring a morning show, which was one of the ways that uh, they were trying to break through to a broader market. He was working as an anchor with Darren Hinch on 3XY. As, a, as the host and Hinch doing his talk back and agro and all that uh, stuff that he does, but with a jock playing music as well. And, the, and the, it, was, um, it was hands tall. And uh, I got a call one night from um, Graham, the, the program director, and he said, Hans's wife, is, who was um, several months pregnant, is been identified with a critical illness and he can't come to work. I was on air at the time, like on a Tuesday night or something, he said, can you, can you come in and do, fill in and do nine to midday for us? Because they'd sacked Hinch and it was just a music show at that stage. And uh, I ended up doing nine to midday for them. And um, then Graham came up with the idea when Hans was coming back they, they still had the idea of doing a double show. And he said, what about, how about you and Hans working together? And I said, I don't know. And he said, well, I think it could work. So they set us off to lunch together. We got um, quite pissed. And our first task before we went on air was to do a uh, an interview with Linda Ronstadt. And um, we went to, the, <laughs> to Melbourne Zoo with her for some reason. It must have been part of a part of a concept that was a TV thing. And um, it, that worked so well. He said, I reckon you two should work together. And he just threw us together when hands came back. Now, tell me, Barry, how often were you chastised for calling your program The Handsome Barry Show? <laughs> no, that was, that was somebody, some a, a listener telephoned the station because <laughs> there was no emails or any any contact like that in those days and uh we got a we got a message from the switchboard one of those little tear off phone messages and someone called in and said who does that bloke think he is calling himself handsome barry it's radio you can't even tell so she didn't identify that there were actually two people there so that, that was that was hands and barry not handsome barry now, as you mentioned, Darren Hinch did move on from 3XY down to 3AW and seemed to be hell-bent on making an impression in those rating books. How conscious were you at the time that Hinch was after you and your audience? Well, he was doing it via talk. So, um, and we were, we were a music station. So, although we, we, we were doing a, a chat thing. We did, we did a lot of interviews and uh some amazing people would come into the studio. Um, we got photos of um, John Travolta sitting in the studio with me and Hans. And the record companies and the film companies were keen to get us because it was a bit more, it wasn't hardcore news, news it was more entertainment and, and a bit of fun. And uh, so I remember Spike Milligan came in to do an interview and he ended up staying for the whole morning and then, then again, another lunch. So it was just that sort of freedom to make it more entertainment rather than, but we really didn't know what we were doing. We were just having a good time and it worked. Now, of course, FM radio was slowly infiltrating the airwaves from the early 80s. When did you see the writing on the wall for your next career move? Well, when, um, when the licences were allocated, uh, the two FM licences to Melbourne, there was E.ON, and the other one was Fox FM, which was a easy listening music station format. 
um, and Eon was hardcore rock and roll. And Glenn Wheatley was part of the part of the board and um, part of the owners. And he offered Lee a job, Lee Simon, to go across. And I thought I'd, I'd just started the morning thing at, at um, the next one. I thought, mm, I don't know, I'm actually quite enjoying this. Let's see what happens. And so I held out for a year and Fox changed formats because they, they'd, they'd gone round in a circle. I started with something like 3.1% of the market in their very first survey and 12 months later they'd gone back to 3.1%. So the, the format was going nowhere. So they needed to overhaul it and that's when, um, that's when they brought, brought us in, brought me in. So did you pick the fox or did the fox lure you? Uh, the fox lured me across because they lured me across with the change of format and the ability to play, to do music. At the Fox, you were obviously doing a lot of solo work, but also teamed up with some delightful ladies, including Jane Holmes. Yeah, I, I loved working with Jane. I, I worked with a lot of people during those, like a lot of different people. Dee Dee, Diane Dunleavy, uh, Bridget Duclos, who's still a very good friend. Not that Dee Dee isn't, but I don't, don't see her too often. Uh, Jane, I... I speak to occasionally, but haven't seen her in a long time. Um, yeah, I, there was there was that constant pairing up of people and then people moving on, and uh, I just, you know, did what I was asked to do. And... The new fox, more fun at work. I listen to it at work because I play great music. Oh, it's great to listen to Fox at work. It oh, really makes the day fly. More fun at work and all of today's best music. 1019, The New Fox. So we had The Fox, we had The New Fox and a few other tweaks to the format as well. Which do you think was the most successful? No doubt it was the Osteria format, format uh, under Greg Smith. We had, um, we, we'd had some quite good success prior to that. We'd, um, we had successfully um, taken Eon with their hard rock and ours, the Fox's softer rock was a bit more mellow uh, than now but a bit more extensive. So there was an era of, of um, really nice, it was the era of the Eagles and um, Doobie Brothers and all that gentle West Coast sound which, you know, didn't have the hard blaring guitars necessarily and was more palatable, I think, to a um, an older music audience. And um, so we had uh, Eon was still stuck on, before they came triple M, being stuck on the you know, loud guitars and, and real rock and roll, which was also an American-style format. And uh, we just um, sort of snuck in behind them and did good music but not loud, more, um, more palatable stuff for older ears. Now, of course, Barry, jocks are always asked to be involved in various promotional activities. What can you tell me about representing the fox at the oyster-eating competition at the Fish Exchange restaurant in Melbourne? <laughs> Not much, because I don't like oysters. <laughs> I've never liked them, and I don't know. It was one of those things you just, I think I must have blocked it out of my mind. I haven't heard thought about it since but um yes i didn't win can i tell you just off off script here for a second um that whole thing from the don lane show the whole segment just came up on youtube on on facebook today so i'll send it on to you yeah with sean cosgrove (laughs) and greg evans was in there and uh and mark day i think from aw represented aw uh liz sullivan was there as well that's yeah. the only reason I put that one in because I didn't know about that until I saw it come well, up no, on Facebook I'd, today. I'd forgotten about it. It's something I completely, I completely <laughs> blocked out. I remember where the where the place was now. It was on King Street. And I, I remember getting there and I thought, oh, my God, I hate oysters. <laughs> how, did I get, how did I get here? I think I just faked my way through it. But I certainly, I, I, I don't think I ate one. I, I, I remember the, my dad was a, loved oysters and I remember they used to say, no, I'm going to, Gotta have one of these, you'll love them. And I gagged on it, didn't I never even swallowed it. That was the only time I've ever tried to eat an oyster. Day 40, day 40, day 40. 
Now, the jewel in your broadcasting crown was no doubt the incredibly successful Take 40 Australia. The obvious question is, did Casey Kasem's American Top 40 provide the blueprint for the program or simply the motivation to do something Australian? Um, a bit of both. It was the, Fox was playing, we used to play um, American Top 40 on Sunday evenings. Uh, and it used to come on, on disc, on big 12-inch discs. And there were three discs with um, half an hour or 20 minutes, I think, on each side. And you had to interchange the discs and turn them over. And I, I used to panel operate that. That was one of my, one of my first jobs there. And um, it, it rated its butt off. And uh, there was a, a young, bit of an upstart salesman, called Tony McGinn, who'd been at 3AW and got the ass for being a smart-ass. And he came to Fox and asked me for a job as a salesman. I said, you're talking to the wrong person. I'm, I'm in programming. The sales manager's across the aisle, Barry Cameron. And he said, oh, well, can I get an appointment with him? And I said, well, go and ask him. He's sitting there. So he talked his way into Fox. And I'm not quite sure what happened, but... Um, he also found his way out of Fox about 12 months later and he contacted me and said after three months after he'd gone and said, I've got a concept to do um, a, an Australian version of um, American Top 40. And he said, I've got Ed Nimavol, who was um, the writer, a very famous Melbourne music journalist, um, who died some years ago, and I still see his wife, Jan. Um, he's, he said, I've got Ed, Ed to write it. Do you want to do the voice work? So we used to, do, I used to go and do Fox early on a uh, Monday morning, I think 7.30am after the charts had come out. There was no area charts in those days. I think Ed used to make up his own charts and script the show. And I did the voice work and Nigel Haynes, who's still in the business, um, used to put it together, edit it up and put the music in and make me sound like I was talking up to the vocal. And everyone thought I was a genius, but all I did was do the voice work and Nigel put it together. Now, the second station to pick up the program was, of course, 3SH in Swan Hill. How special was that to you? That was a, that they, I think they kind of felt obliged to do it because Tony started shopping it around. And I'd said to him, I'd, I'd actually tried to put Tony off doing the idea. He said, because we'd done an Elton John special um, that we'd recorded at, at Fox. I'd recorded with Elton and we put it together as a special. And he, he said, Oh, you know, I've got an idea we can, like, like the Elton John thing, which, you know, we, they syndicated all over the place because it was an exclusive interview. He said, you know, we can do that with a weekly countdown. I said, I don't think it's that easy. It's not that easy, Tony. I said, you need to get, and I was trying to put him off. I said, you need to get a major sponsor, you know, like a bank or a Commonwealth Bank or I don't know what the others were called in those days. Well, you know, I said, ideally something more youth-oriented like Coca-Cola as a sponsor to pay for it. So pay for you to do it and, and for a voice work and to you know, do the tapes and send it all out and mailing and everything. And he went, oh, oh, okay, I'll get back to you. And he rang me, I think, maybe five or six weeks later and he said, I've got Coca-Cola, are you in? <laughs> and that, that's where it started. And he did. He got a 12 months sponsorship out of Coke and Coke then pushed it into all the other markets as part of their market force. It was part of their branding. So they went and they offered it to radio stations for free in return for one ad per hour in the show. And because it was sort of entertaining and it was Australian, I can't remember the guy's name, John, who was, who was very, Tony, Tony worked really hard on him, but he, he made the whole thing happen. So in the whole Take 40 experience, what gave you the most satisfaction? Was it the promoting of the music, the incredible reach of the audience, or the longevity of the program itself? Um, the reach of the audience was amazing because I remember when we got, a, we got it, and this was just based on capital city figures uh, because there was no surveys in, in um, regional markets, and we, we topped over a million listeners in one survey, um, 1.1 million listeners, and that was 
you know, and suddenly went, oh, my God, you've got a bit of a responsibility here. You can't just go dicking around and make this stuff up as you go along. And um, then, uh, and you know, then the, the marketing thing just kept moving. It got onto so many other stations. And um, we got way more professional at what we did. And Tony started his own company out of it, NCM. Instead of us doing it at, at uh, Fox, he, he got his own studios and did it himself. Now, Barry, the program had a massive 21-year run under your watch and was absolutely must-listen-to radio. So when did you feel the enthusiasm start to wane? (laughs) This is a very difficult question. My enthusiasm never waned. Um, But there was a um, whole different force in um, radio. Australia had become a national broadcaster. And um, there were some people within the company who thought I was too old school um, for doing what I'm doing because I was 41 or 42 years old or something at that stage and it needed a younger sound. And so I was politely asked to step aside to bring in a younger host. So I went downhill from there. (laughs) So did you ever listen to subsequent editions and presenters after you handed over the baton? I knew Andy. I'd, I'd known Andy. Um, or what is it? Andy it was Andy G back then mm. and now um, Osher Ginsberg. But that was an evolution of name changes. Um, and, you know, he was, he was a nice enough guy. He was young and very self-promoting and he, he brought his own touch to it, but it was much more casual. Um, and as a, it's strange because I, uh, he'd, he'd always liked my sort of work, but they wanted, um, Fox especially, uh, and SAFM wanted a, a younger, um, profile. Kyle and Jackie, was always going to be a Kyle and Jackie show. It wasn't, it wasn't music, it wasn't based on the top 40. But also, I mean, a lot of things changed in that era because music became more available. To, to people rather than just having to go into a shop and buy an old, you know, seven-inch 45 disc because that's what charts were based on back then, actual physical record sales. And then music became available through all different sources. So I, it was the beginning of the end anyway. I think it's not, a, it's not really a, rel- uh, a relative format anymore. This is Pilots of the Airwaves, and our special guest in this episode is Barry Bissell. Barry, it's fair to say that you've interviewed almost every major music star on the planet, including the late Michael Jackson in Japan. Can you tell us a little about that encounter? I didn't. I met Michael, but there was no interviews. The, and the reason I, um, we went, they, 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 Michael was touring Australia. He was, in the, he was about to tour Australia, and... Um, he was doing shows in Japan and the ticket sales in Australia were, to put it bluntly, on the nose because, Mike, all that bad publicity about him, you know, sleeping with his chimpanzee and being locked in a, you know, a bloody airtight bed overnight and all those crazy rumours were going around. And so ticket sales in Australia were terrible, even though he had massive hits he as a as a uh, live act was really on the nose and so the record company uh, i think it was sony well yeah i think it was sony by then it was cbs um sent five of us to japan paid for us to go it was brad march me a couple of other radio guys from sydney and we went we went, uh, they took us, the first night we got there, we, were, we went to a, um, Osaka. We went to Tokyo and then the show was in Osaka and it was in a, like a baseball stadium, humongous. And the Japanese um, didn't really care about Michael's personal life, but they loved his music. And the shows were, the first night was cancelled because he was sick. And so they put it back to the following night. and. Um, so we had to wait a day to go and then we went to the show and uh, post-show they had a meet and greet at the hotel. And by that stage, they had a second show 
for the following night and um, Sony just said to me, you want to stay and do the second show? And I said, yeah. And um, so uh, they had a meet and greet in the hotel and I was, it was really uncomfortable because of like maybe 40 people, Japanese uh, record company people and um, press and stuff, mostly Japanese, but the five Aussies there. And they had a replay of that show, the show on a big screen in, in the corner and all the, all the Japanese people gathered around Michael and yabbering at him like he was a sideshow for it because he came in with the full military costume and everything and he looked terrified and I thought, oh, this is so uncomfortable, I can't, you know, I'm not going to stand there and go, hi, Michael, over the heads of the Japanese press. So I went and sat in the corner on the, I'm sitting on the edge of the sofa watching the replay and all of a sudden this little voice beside me said, it's Barry, yes? And I said, he said, no, it's Barry, right? And I said, yes, and it's Michael. And he said, did you like the show? And he sat down beside me and he started, he just started talking to me and it wasn't an interview, sadly, but he, um, and then, then they invited me back they were having a preview of um, one of his video um, a Swedish producer had done a, a rough a 16 minute long form video of the, the way you make me feel mm-hmm. with all his dance steps and everything in it and they he said he said Joe said the video producer came over to Mike and I said come on Mikey we're going to go upstairs he's trying to get him out out of the out of the press room, he said, we're going to go upstairs and watch this video. And he said, well, I'm talking to Barry. And he said, well, we have to do it now because we've got all the record company and stuff. And he said, oh, would you like to come up, up and watch it too? And, yeah, that was how I met him. And he, um, he was very open about, you know, he said, I feel like a freak show. I don't know why they do this to me. And, uh, he's, yeah, he, had, he warmed my heart and broke my heart at the same time because he was such a part of a, a, a political or just a, a merchandise. He was, no, he was no better than a bottle of Coke as far as I'm concerned. He was a moneymaker. And um, I just thought it was really sad. And, you know, he started to go downhill from there. He'd already had the surgery. You could see a little hole on his nose where, where it hadn't kind of worked properly. And I just thought he was a sad indictment of what commercialism and music and um, management could do to people. I'd seen the Jackson Five in Adelaide in 1972 or 73, and I didn't want to go to the Jackson Five because I thought they were so uncool, you know, and I just sat there mesmerised because from the minute he came on stage, bad sound and everything, he was just like, you can't take your eyes off him. He was brilliant, no costumes, not like the solo days, but he was just incredible. And uh, it was a bit the same when he came in. That when I went to the show in Japan, it was just extraordinary. The production and the values were were incredible, and he was incredible. But uh, he he try, he he was working like seven or eight hours a day because he would rehearse every single step, every single movement, every day, and do the show through his light cues and everything. And he was just. Um, it was like a machine, but you could see it was going to take its toll. So on reflection, Barry, was it the knowledge of music, the connection with an audience, or the will to be the best you can that made Barry Bissell so successful behind the microphone for so many years? Um, I don't know that it was a will to be the best. I, well, I, I want no. I, I wanted to. I wanted to do my job well. I didn't want to go down in history as this is the best because I wasn't. I was, I was messy in a lot, a lot of ways. But um, I just loved it and I loved the opportunity that it gave me to, to meet the people that I met and um, to you know, have the experience that I would, wouldn't have had had it not been for the, the freedom I got on air to, to do stuff. I mean, I've, I've met so many people over the years, but it's, but it's really sad that I didn't get to do Michael, but, uh, to talk to interview Michael, but the, the agreement was that the only interview was with Molly um, for Countdown. That was 
that was the, the deal that the, the record company had done. So even if I'd sort of turned up with my cassette recorder, I wouldn't have been able to do it. But he, that's, he was quite willing and open to talk to me, knowing that it wasn't going to be broadcast anywhere because he wasn't allowed to. Gently rocking 3XY Okay, Barry, time now for a dozen or so of our stock standard questions that we do ask all our guests. The first one being, where were you when you heard that John Lennon had died? I was in Albert Park. It was a very, 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 very hot day. Um, One of those... 38, 40 degree days in Melbourne. And I'd been, I was, uh, Hans and I had been doing a morning show. We were doing, I was doing mornings at uh, 3XY. And I went to lunch <laughs> with, um, lunch again, with um, a woman who was doing, who later became famous in her own um, way, Margaret St. George. Uh, who was doing promotions for Paul Dainty, and they took. I went to lunch with a whole bunch of people, including her, and got totally pissed, and went home and crashed because I had to do something that night. And I was in, I was lying in my bed in a, in a Albert Park in a really hot little terrace house, going, "Oh God, it's you know, it's too hot to to even have a nap, even though I was." Uh, little bit under the weather and I had to go somewhere that night and um, my phone rang and it was the publicist from Paul Dainty who assuming that I knew said well I guess you're not going to see the Beatles together and I said what do you mean she said oh don't you know and I said no what and she said John Lennon's dead and um, yeah it was like holy shit Barry, the last concert ticket you paid for? <laughs> I've been thinking about that and I recall, to my, to my best knowledge, I, w- I went to Peter, Paul and Mary when I was at, before I even started in radio. So I came down with some mates from Swan Hill to see them in 1965. I would have paid for those tickets. Once I got into radio and the, the big touring thing started, I don't think... To be perfectly honest, I, I ever paid for a ticket um, until the Rolling Stones were touring and they were doing, um, they were doing a sh- going to do a show at Hanging Rock. But because it was such a small show, there was abs- absolutely the, the, the instructions from Mick Jagger were there is no free tickets. So everybody, including the promoter's family and you know, all people had to pay for their tickets. So I did pay for my Rolling Stones ticket and then they pulled the show. They cancelled and Mick went home because his girlfriend was sick. So I got my money back. The concert act that you regret never seeing? Really just the Beatles because I was in, you know, I was in Swan Hill, I was too young and I do, not, do know people. I had friends in Melbourne, got tickets and went to see them. But, you know, weren't in those days in a position because the tickets went on sale a year before. It was a very strange tour. So I would love to have done that, but it, um, you know, mm. it was never going to happen. Otherwise, I pretty much, I don't think, I don't think I've missed anything great in the last few years. I've seen Guns and Rocks and everybody, partly because uh, Michael Budinsky and I became very good friends and um, I'm still friends with his family to this day. So um, I was always pretty much invited to everything, which for which I'm very grateful. Can I chuck in another one here? Was there a concert act that ever left you disappointed? Yes, but on the other hand, it's the same act that I've also thought was amazing. And it's, it's, um, it's somebody who, for some reason, decided to keep on going, way past the use by date. And it was Elton John. I saw him first in Adelaide when I first went there. It's one of the first international concerts I ever saw. And he played at, um, at, a, at a, an outdoor venue and he was extraordinary. 
He was absolutely extraordinary. When we when he decided to do that tour with 384 dates, which was the Goodbye Yellow Brick Road tour, um, I saw him at a winery um, down near Geelong. And I'd, I'd seen him several times in between do great shows. And this concert, I went, why the hell are you doing this, mate? He was, I mean, he was still incredible, but he was going, he, he, he worked like a madman, like he needed to make a million dollars, a bit like Michael. He was so driven, but it just didn't have, it didn't have the heart. His voice was starting to get crackly because he was, you know, he was in not, not good condition. He was very unwell. And, um, he, uh, it was just disappointing to see somebody that could, who I knew could be great who was just sitting there, you know, going through the motions. The word you had most trouble pronouncing on air. <laughs> there is a word, but you know, I honestly can't remember, but I was in Swan Hill we used to do, um, we had to do local, um, local things and a lot of them were um, ads for properties or um, hay feeding companies and stuff. And there's a little place out of Swan Hill which was on the list of, of towns where this, these people, stock and station agents, worked. And there's a town called Manangatang. And every time I'd go to read it, I'd go, I could say it perfectly well until I got in there and had this mental block and I could never get past it. Do Swan Hill, Corrine, Lake Burger, blah, 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 Manangatang, because they were live script reads, and I, I don't know that I ever got it right. Barry, was there ever an incident that had you thinking you might get those Don't Come Monday orders? Uh, one of the, yeah, that, and I also um, dropped the F-bomb one night at, um, at 3DB <laughs> with the mic still open, uh, which I didn't realise. I left the mic on, put the record on, took my headphones off because I had the headphones on really loud, put them down, left the mic on, and somebody came in and I again dropped the magic word, which was quite audible. Um, I got called over the colours for it, but um, don't let it happen again. Skyhooks or Sherbert? Skyhooks. Daryl's a good mate and I love Sherbert. The Skyhooks were phenomenal. I said that bit, they... They both played on the same gig for us at 5KA in Adelaide at Memorial Drive. And uh, there was a toss-up as to who went first, but because um, because in those days Skyhooks were kind of hip and cool, it was the early 70s, and Adelaide had broken the album. Skyhooks were huge in Adelaide, and um, Sherbet went on first, and Skyhooks went on second and just blew the place away. And I love Sherbet, but Skyhooks was much more, sort of, much more my sort of music. I'll ask this one, but I think I know the answer. Rolling Stones or the Beatles? Stones. <laughs> no, no, Beatles. Because they were much more influential. Much more influential. Um, it seemed sort of uncool later, but, you know, that was... I remember... And Swan Hill setting my alarm clock to, to wake up and listen because being flat, you could hear, I could hear um, stations from at night. You could pick up uh, 2UW in Sydney, which played really great music. And uh, it was way before I got on radio. And I, I used to, I worked out their rotation. And uh, there were a couple of, couple of tracks. Spencer Davis group was one. And I worked out, they'd, they'd tell you, we're going to play the new Beatles song in the next hour. So I'd set my alarm clock and wake up all through the night, make sure I heard it. Um, but, yeah, mostly Beatles. And when they did um, All My Lovin', uh, that was that was a big tease because that was when they were coming to Australia even the tickets had been sold years ago. Um, all My Lovin' was the big, All My Lovin' I Will Bring To You was a big promotion for them coming to Australia, even though you couldn't buy tickets anymore. Do you have a most treasured piece of memorabilia from those early radio days? Um, that's interesting. I, I'm, not a, I'm not, a very, not very good at memorabilia. Um, 
my sister has kept a lot of things. When, we were, when I was doing Take 40 Australia, Sony Records, who were sort of pocket-cozying pocket, up to us, um, did a, like a gold record presentation that they, you know, they give to artists when you, when you get a gold record or triple platinum or whatever, and they make it up with a disc inside a, a frame. And um, MCM, uh, the, the record company, Sony, um, made one for the 1,000th episode of Take 40 Australia with uh, people signed it and stuff and a, and a gold disc on it. Uh, so that's pretty much the only thing that I've got that's, you know, presented to Barry Bissell and the, the uh, 1,000th episode of Take 40 Australia and, uh, from Sony, Sony Records. I don't hang it in my lounge room because it's a bit embarrassing. <laughs> Barry, what was the biggest story that broke while you were on air? Well, this goes way, way back to Swan Hill and in my very early days um, and I was working, I used to do Sunday afternoons on air and there was no news reader. We, we used to take news from uh, another source, you'd tap in and on the hour and bring it up. But we did have a teleprinter back in those days, which was like a fact was in it, rolled out stories. And there was an alert in the studio that came up that was sent from AAP or, or whoever the news agency was to alert you to a story. And I was on air the day that Harold Holt disappeared in the surf at Portsea and they kept sending this every every 20 seconds, this thing had come up and the toilet printer was going mad with these stories coming to and I wasn't a newsreader. And so I asked, I, I rang the program director and said, on the hotline and said, what should I do? And he said, read it out. And so I announced to the small audience in Swan Hill that Harold Holt had uh, disappeared into the surf at Portsea. So I'll, ne- I'll never forget that. I could practically tell you what thongs I was wearing. For all the people that you've interviewed, have you ever been starstruck? A bit by John Travolta, but then he turned out to be uh, very charming and um, years later agreed to, to uh, come into the Fox studios. And he said to, he'd, said to, he'd been into uh, 3XY. No, he'd been into 3XY when we were in Spencer Street. And then he came years later to promote a movie and I went to do an interview with him uh, on a, on a uh, tape recorder and I was brought in by the publicist. I think he was here for Flashpoint or something. That's a movie about computers. And the, the, uh, the, the uh, person, the, the movie company brought us in and introduced me and said, oh, this is John Travolta, this is Barry Bissell. He's from, uh, from, five, uh, from 3XY. Well, from Fox, and he said, "Ah, he said, we've met before," and I said, "Oh, yeah." I thought he'd been told, and he said, "I remember we were in a studio overlooking railway yards," and I said, "Yeah, that was three X Y back in nineteen seven. Was I left there in eighty one? So it was late late seventies." And he remembered, he said, yeah, I remember you. I'm like, oh, then I was a bit starstruck. <laughs> Best words of advice from a program manager? Um, can I say shut the fuck up? <laughs> um, yes, don't talk so much. Finally, Barry, two albums that you would consider to be the soundtrack of your teenage years. Uh, teenage, well, um, Sergeant Peppers, Lonely Hearts Club Band, um, I remember playing it over and over and over and over again. I used to carry it around with me. Um, that would be the main one, I think, for teenage years. Um, it wasn't so much in it. Well, yes, it was. It. I, I guess the other one was um, the Stones album, Five by Five, which wasn't even an album. It was like an EP or Aftermath. Aftermath was one of the early Stones albums. 
they were they were made too. So even back then, it was Beatles and Stones. Well, Barry, can I firstly say that we are all so pleased that your father gave you that nod of approval all those years ago, and his prediction obviously was absolutely right. He did make it. It's been a stellar career that's been part of people's lives right across Australia. Congratulations on that, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks, mate. I'm humbled by that, and I appreciate it very much. Barry Bissell on Pilots of the Airwaves. Airwaves.